1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka.
0: And I'm Martison.
1: Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell Is Going On? Mark, do you even know what the hell is going on?
0: I have no idea what the hell is going on. You know why? Because I'm Joe Biden. <laughs> 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 I have no That's idea so what the hell is going on. <laughs> I feel
1: like I set you up for that one.
0: You did, absolutely. And I, I batted it out of the park. Look, we have Andy McCarthy on the podcast, who is one of our favorite guests. And we originally brought him on to explain to us how bad the border bill was. And since then, all of a sudden, the topic changed because the border bill died. And we had a Supreme Court case on the 14th Amendment and whether Trump can be kicked off of the ballot by the state of Colorado and other states. And so... Uh, that was going to happen, and then all of a sudden, the Herb report came out, uh, showing that Joe Biden uh, willfully uh, retained and 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 shared classified information with people who are not authorized to receive it. But we're not going to; they're not going to prosecute him because a jury would find him, and I quote, "a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory." Uh, So we are going to talk about those things. We're going to talk about all three of them, but in descending order with the most recent outrage, which is that Joe Biden uh, doesn't know what the hell is going on.
1: Yeah. You know what? Look, I have to say, I know there was a lot of outrage uh, about the report, obviously from the Democrats, because uh, her kind of, you know, was that like the little kid in the fable who said, oh, my God, why is the emperor wearing no clothes? And obviously uh, uh, from Republicans saying the president simply isn't fit. I think what was interesting to me about this actually was, well, first first I want to say what I said on Twitter, which is this is all hugely sad. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't like Joe Biden uh, at all. And I, I've never liked him particularly as a politician. Um, but I knew him when he was a lot younger and I was a lot younger. And, and to watch somebody who has such a will to power and wants to do things, be so sad is not, it's not weekend at Bernie's. It's a tragedy. It really is. So from that standpoint, I feel terrible for him and for his family. And lastly, of course, for the democratic party, for me, what was super interesting about this was the way the press piled on. Usually when there's a story like this, like the press are like, well, nothing to see here. What? No, no, no problems. And instead, what we saw was this massive, massive pylon. And I think it betrays the fact, something that we, you and I know, Mark, because we spend a lot of time talking to journalists, which is that they all knew this all along. They're all angry at the White House for covering it up. They're angry at the White House for not giving them access to decision makers. And this was really what was fascinating. That's why this isn't going to go away.
0: Yeah, so I don't share your sympathy for Joe Biden for one simple reason, is that you and I both worked in the Senate for many years and have seen many senators come and go. And we've all had the experience of seeing a elderly former senator who really isn't quite as uh, sharp as he used to be in his retirement. And we say, oh, isn't that sad that he's he's declined so much? The difference is this elderly former senator now has the nuclear codes. <laughs> and and if he, if he wasn't sitting in the Oval Office presiding over the most disastrous presidential administration in my lifetime i would have more sympathy for him that but he is sitting in the oval office he does have the nuclear codes he is you know this this 5 hour meeting he had with the special counsel happened the day after october 7th when he's ma- when he's managing a huge crisis in the middle east and he can't remember like when he was vice president and he can't remember when his son died and he can't remember all sorts of questions that uh, you know in this five-hour meeting that he had over two days with with the special counsel, and what's fascinating about this report and why I think it's so shocking to a lot of people is there there was just a poll that came out a couple months ago seventy six percent of Americans thought that Joe Biden was not was too old to serve another term, and that, that new poll just came out this morning it's now eighty six percent I mean this is now that's as close to you as you get to consensus in a country that you could possibly have. But all of us were making that judgment on the basis of his public utterances. You know, we see him forgetting the name of Hamas when he's trying to describe at a press conference how the state of hostage negotiations or talking about his meeting with uh, a French president who died in 1996 or having discussed the Capitol riot with Helmut Kohl uh, who had died four years earlier. And we look at this and say, My, "What is if he's this bad in public, what is he like? Behind closed doors, and this has lifted the veil of what he's behind, like behind closed doors, because this is describing the president in a private five-hour meeting with the special counsel, something we never get to see. And the conclusion he says in an interview, I just want to quote what the, what the special counsel wrote in his interview with our office: Biden, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended and forgetting on the second day when his term began. He didn't remember within even several years when his son Bo died. He, he forgot he was describing the debate over the surge in Afghanistan during the Obama years and was describing his differences with General Eikenberry, who had actually been his ally. In pushing against a surge of forces in Afghanistan, so he couldn't even while he's managing the crisis in the Middle East, he didn't know who was on his side and what was going on in the in the in the battle in the previous administration. It concludes based on those interviews that he has diminished faculties and faulty memories. This is the commander in chief who is managing a war in Europe, a war in the Middle East. Potential, you know, American troops are being fired on in the Red Sea and Iraq and, and Syria. Um, we're, ta- we're trying to take on the Houthis, and we're dealing with Iran escalating its attacks on us. Uh, we could potentially have a war into over Taiwan if China decided that this was the moment to act because they sense weakness. And we have a commander-in-chief who has diminished faculties, an elderly, ma- ma- genial, well-meaning elderly man with a faulty memory— I'm sorry, the commander-in-chief can't be a well-meaning elderly man with a faulty memory. I mean, I truly, this, this calls into question whether he can even finish his first term, much less whether he should have a second term.
1: Right. Well, you have a piece about that in the post. But, I mean, let, let's, let's be honest. The mechanisms for him not finishing his first term are few and far between. We have an election in nine months. Um, the problem, uh, it, this would be a slam dunk for his opponent if his opponent wasn't Donald Trump. And even— Though it is Donald Trump. He is now surging ahead in the polls. Uh, people have more confidence in him. Uh, he's no spring chicken either. But I mean we are we are faced with a with an embarrassment of of horrors, if I can change that phrase around a little bit um, and uh, and i got I got to tell you i don 't think the Constitution's going to help us here. We have a good conversation with Andy about that, but we got to what else to, so we talk about that we talk about the twenty fifth amendment then we get on to the 14th Amendment, talk about the Supreme Court, and I, again i <sighs> So, I mean, look, I know you don't like my expression of of sadness because you think it doesn't sort of fully appreciate the, the risk. And I understand what you're saying. I think you can share both sentiments where I where I truly am not sad, but I'm just horrified is this willingness to corrupt the Constitution in order to achieve political ends. Yeah, I get it. I can't stand Donald Trump. I'm not going to vote for him, won't vote for him in the primary, won't vote for him in the general. He lost me on January 6th and he's never going to get me back. But the 14th Amendment is not the out. And the willingness of certain Republicans to provide a fig leaf for this unbelievably spurious argument is just gross.
0: No, exactly. Look, there there are people uh, who, both Democrats and some never-Trump Republicans, who are perfectly willing to tear down our democracy in order to save it. (laughs) You know, I mean, and this is this is the flaw in the it is mostly the Democrats. But there are some people on the right, I agree with you as well, uh, who should know better. But here's the thing that they say that they love our democracy so much that we have to burn it down in order to save it. And what they are doing is as big, if not a bigger threat to our democracy than Donald Trump is. Because, you know, what what happened on January 6th and you and I agree 100 percent on what happened was January 6th was, was was an absolute disgrace. But on January 6th, what protected us were our institutions, our institutions held. The vice president did his job. The Congress did its job. The state legislatures did their job. The courts did their jobs. The every everybody that all the checks and balances our founders put on 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 our system held. And Donald, there was no there was no way Donald Trump was going to hold on to power. After, uh, on January 20th. It wasn't going to happen because of all those checks and balances. The, the people who are so deranged by Donald Trump, they want to tear down all those institutions and all those checks and balances in order to stop him. And they justify it by, well, he's such a threat. And you're doing as much damage as he is or threatens to do to our democracy. You know, get using, invoking the 14th Amendment to keep him off the ballot so that people can't. And and not only are they doing damage to our democracy and tearing down our institutions, but they are empowering Donald Trump. The reason Donald Trump is cruising to the nomination right now is because 91 indictments, 91 indictments. There were 12 for Charles Manson. And what that has done is caused Republicans to rally around Donald Trump and push off any chance that that we would nominate somebody else. And they actually wanted that because they think he's easier to beat. But they weren't counting on the fact that Joe Biden is non-complice mentis and that he and he's such a disaster that Americans might turn around and say, you know what, things were better under Trump. Maybe if I'm forced to make that choice that I don't want, it may not go the way the Democrats want it to go. Um, you know, and then on top of that, and we to get to bring, to bring our conversation to the end because we, I want to get to Andy because we bring it back to the border. If you were a Democrat who watched in 2016 and saw that Donald Trump rode illegal immigration to the presidency, when you got to the White House and took back power, why would you turn around and unleash the worst border crisis in American history and think that that's not going to help propel Donald Trump back to the White House in 2024? Because literally everything they are doing is paving the way for him to return back to the— I'll tell you why. Why?
1: Because there is a false belief in the White House— right, in this elite corner of the White House that doesn't live in the real world, that believes that if Biden is tough on the border, they will lose the left of the Democratic Party. It's the exact same insanity that's governing their thinking about the Middle East. These people cannot cross the street without making a mistake. It is unbelievable. They're wrong, right? Right. The, the nation would applaud them chicago 's mayor would applaud them new york 's mayor would applaud them. The Hispanic caucuses would applaud them. We need a freaking border they but they don 't get that because they don 't live in the real world and talk to real people, but we do. And we're talking to Andy McCarthy. He almost (laughs) doesn't need an introduction. We've had him on so many times. He's uh, along with John Yu. He's one of our favorite go-to legal minds. He's a senior fellow at National Review Institute. He's a contributing editor at NR, and he is the author of Bowl of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency.
0: Here's our interview. Andy, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Great to be with you guys.
0: As Danny was saying before we went on air you're you're one of our prestigious guests. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as I told you
2: guys that that is not in my old line of work being a recidivist well actually now it's not as big of a thing as it was back then actually we put people in jail back then well, but we,
0: you know, we have criminal so justice it was a different reform. Era. we have podcast justice reform here so you are <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Right, right now it's yeah, what 20, 28
0: strikes and you're out there you go <laughs> <laughs> we invited you a week ago and the subject has changed three times since then because you and I have been on Fox together to talk about three different topics yes. um, and it started with the border bill then it was the 14th amendment case and then the her report came out. So why don't we why don't we start in reverse order of what's come out and let's talk about this her report. So the the report came out about Biden's mishandling of classified information and in lay terms her basically said he did willfully retain and share classified information but I'm not going to prosecute him because a jury would find him as an old man with a weak memory who meant well. Is that basically right?
2: That's in a nutshell. That's what the report says. Now, I think the report is deeply flawed legally uh, because if you're talking about willfulness when you're dealing with a statute where it's a ten-year felony, gross
0: negligence,
2: gross negligence, a ten-year felony. Um, yeah, that that's a problem. But I, I just to to begin with, if it's all right with you guys, I, I would just talk about the reception this has gotten. Because, yes. I, I mean, I think it's it's actually, objectively speaking, Now I know that everybody has to, like, have their, their political uh, hat on for dealing with this because of the election season we're in. But, you know, this is a prosecutor who had a very strong case against him and recommended against charges, which in most places is deemed to be a coup. So the idea that, you know, they're attacking this guy as a Republican hack when a Republican hack would have invented a case rather than walked away from one that he had is ludicrous to me. But the other thing is the regulation says that the special counsel is supposed to provide the attorney general with a confidential report. And then it's up to the the attorney general to decide how much of the report gets publicized and whether anything gets redacted. So to the extent people are upset – about the way that her articulated what he articulated in the report their problem isn't with her their problem is with with Garland, who was the one who published the report with no redactions. And then the other thing is if you're trying to explain to your superior why you shouldn't bring a prosecutable case, you know the stronger the evidence is that the case is prosecutable, the the heavier lift it is to explain, why we shouldn't charge. So it was her job, if he really thought that there was an issue with with, uh, Biden's, uh, not only the operation of his mind, but how that would sell with a jury. It was his obligation in a comprehensive way and a blunt way to explain that to Garland. I get the impression reading it that he's quoting from recordings or transcripts That, you know, this isn't like he characterized what the guy said. In a lot of places, he's quoting him. And the other thing is, one of the things that would go into the decision whether to charge would be like, if we indict this guy, are we going to end up with six months or a year in litigation over whether he's fit to stand trial, which is a very different issue from whether he committed, you know, whether he had the mental state to commit the crimes at the time they were committed. Because a lot of these criminal acts took place like when he was in the Senate, which he left, I think, 16 years ago. And when he was the vice president, which is eight years ago, his state of mind then is very different from his state of mind now. The state of mind now really goes to his fitness to stand trial. And even if he didn't want to raise that for whatever his own reasons were, any competent defense lawyer In a case where a guy gets indicted for multiple felony national security counts involving classified information, any defense lawyer would raise that issue. So I don't see how he could have avoided this. That is her. I don't know how he could have avoided what he put in the report. But if people were upset about the fact that these conclusions got into the public domain, it was the attorney general who decided to do that, not the special counsel.
0: Andy, they, I mean, it was leaked that they are mad at Garland. And the, the leak was basically that Biden is upset that he didn't protect Biden and that he hasn't put Trump on trial yet. Yeah. And, which is just fascinating because it just confirms Trump's narrative <laughs> that the Justice Department yes. is, is, <laughs> but, is, is prosecuting, you know, the president, you know, why why are you putting me at legal jeopardy? And why are you know, and why are you not going after my opponent?
2: <laughs> and and here's here's the thing, Mark, on that. They're being hoist on their own petard because they played politics with the appointment of these special counsels. And I, every, time, every one of these questions, you're going to have to rein me in because I have like a rant on every one Go of them. Go ahead and we rant.
0: We want to hear well, it.
2: Well, you know, look, why do we have her? Why is there a special counsel here? There's a special counsel because Garland played politics with the appointment of a special counsel for Trump. If you remember at the time that this all happened, the big issue was the Mar-a-Lago documents case in connection with Trump. And then, mind you, the Biden Justice Department had been investigating Trump for almost two years on January 6th and on the documents. And that's because there was no there's no conflict of interest between Trump and the Biden Justice Department. The conflict is between Biden and. And the Biden Justice Department, like if the Biden Justice Department has to investigate Hunter or investigate the president, there's no conflict with investigating Trump. So there was no reason to have a special counsel. But what Garland and I suspect the president did was they put their little heads together when Trump said that he was, you know, announcing early that he was going to run for president. And they said, what we'll do is we'll appoint a special counsel and then we'll tell everyone that – The Biden Justice Department and President Biden have nothing whatsoever to do with whether Trump gets charged or not. We've put this in the hands of a totally independent actor who doesn't have an axe to grind and is totally separate from us, even though he exercises the president's power and even though he answers to Garland. But the story they wanted to tell was they needed a special counsel, even at a time when Garland wouldn't appoint a special counsel for Hunter Biden for years and didn't until that whole thing blew up uh, in court. He didn't need a special counsel for Trump, but he appointed one because they thought it would be politically useful in the 2024 election. And then about two weeks after he did that, it emerges that, that Biden has classified documents just like Trump did. So now Garland is stuck. He's just You know, gotten on his high horse and appointed a special counsel and made a big to-do about the documents, so he had to appoint a special counsel. But if he hadn't appointed one for Trump, he would never have appointed
1: her. So we went a little backwards because I should have asked my question first, which is how did we get here? <laughs> and so we dove right in and now Mark has asked you how we got here. And of course, that's right. I think you can't see it outside the context of politics and you can't see it uh, outside these these sort of seemingly parallel cases of mishandling classified documents. And, and, you know, I think the narrative we're meant to be left with is um, – You know, uh, Joe Biden is a bumbling old fool, and 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 Donald Trump is a malicious, uh, nasty mishandler of classified information. Right. Which, to be fair, sounds reasonably close to the to the facts. Uh, But but let me ask you. Okay, they're mad at Merrick Garland. They're mad at the Justice Department because the trial of Trump has not gone ahead on this. You know, in all of the trials. Uh, you know, E. Jean, whatever her name is, the Stormy Daniels, Carol, all yes. of this other stuff. E. Jean Carroll, thank you. All of this other stuff. Those are garbage prosecutions. The classified information one and the Georgia interference one are the ones that, for at least to me, look like they hold the most peril for the president. But it, the the classified case against the president seems to be going nowhere. What's going on?
2: So. I actually made a proposal, Danny, over, over. Uh, I can't, <laughs> the days all run together now, but it was either over the weekend or Friday or whatever. But I think if Biden wanted to both push back on this idea that he's out to lunch uh, and do something that was fair and would hold him in good political stead and would actually be a smart thing to do if you want to get the Mar-a-Lago case to trial, what he would do is pardon Trump on the classified information counts. And sweat it down to just an obstruction case. The reason the classified information case can't get to trial, and I've been in a couple of these litigations, even if you're putting the pedal to the metal and trying to get a classified documents case to trial, everything is controlled by the Classified Information Procedures Act, which requires you to litigate all admissibility questions regarding classified information prior to trial and also provides for uh, pre-trial appeals. In fact, it it actually even apply, uh, provides for appeals during the trial. Uh, it's one of the craziest statutes because it's the only one I know of in the law where the attorney general can overrule a court, where if a court decides this piece of classified information must be produced to the defense by the government because it's relevant, the attorney general can... Veto what the court says, but then the court can dismiss counts. So the court is like courts in charge of the litigation, attorney general's in charge of the national security information, right? So those cases take a long time to get to trial because even if the government says we can get a very finite set of what we think is relevant, they don't get to decide what's relevant. Once it's a case, the defense gets to play too, right? And they come in and say, as and Trump's guys are doing this just like every— Set of defense lawyers in these cases do, they've come in and say, Oh, we need this raft of other classified documents because how else could the jury understand the documents that the government is trying to put in unless we have this context of these other docs? So it metastasizes and it gets to be very difficult to kind of rein in what's relevant to the case and have the judge make all the rulings prior to the trial about what can come in. And you can make that all disappear overnight if you just got rid of these 32 counts and went to trial on the obstruction counts which there's eight obstruction counts i think it's like somewhere between 40 and 60 years of exposure so it's not these are not these are very serious felony counts but the other thing is and this goes back to hers report again their rationale for charging trump and not charging biden is that Biden cooperated, whereas Trump obstructed. And the thing is, in this country, we don't give awards to people for cooperating because that's what they're supposed to do. You know, we indict people who don't cooperate. So if I commit a murder and I'm reasonably cooperative with the police, they don't say to me, you know, you've been very cooperative, let's forget that little murder thing, you know? They don't do What they do is, it, cooperation becomes a sentencing issue, but you still get charged with the things that the investigators were investigating at the time that you were cooperative. So it doesn't make sense to charge Trump with 32 felony counts of the Espionage Act because he obstructed and then not charge Biden with however many counts of the Espionage Act because he was cooperative. What you do is either charge both of them with the classified documents and charge Trump with obstruction – Or charge neither of them with the classified documents and charge Trump with the obstruction. But you don't not charge the guy because he was cooperative with the police or the investigators.
0: Well, by giving him a buy in the court of law, they've given Trump a buy in the court of public opinion. Because, I mean, Trump is going to look at this and say, look— they showed pictures of boxes at Mar a Lago splayed out. Well, I've got boxes. I mean, I can't remember what the exact phrasing was, but like the classified documents were in a tattered box next to a tree and a lamp held together by bailing wire and, and masking tape and, you know, duct tape. And it, it was just absurd. It's the same, literally the same situation. And then you've got Trump who, no, you know, the. the come big,
1: on, Come on, guys. Biden didn't move the documents. Yes, Biden he did. Biden didn't tell other people he not to bullshit, cooperate. Danny, didn't tell other people not, not to cooperate. Not
0: true. He, he, you are
1: he, always he, defining Trump's deviancy down, Mark. And then, and then the other thing, hold on. Then then Trump, you know, Trump
0: supposedly had these, these, uh, these guys in his office that, oh, I've got these classified documents here. Well, guess what? Biden did the same thing. He's like, oh, he's over with his ghostwriter. I've got some classified documents here. Let me read them to you. You know, so from from the public perspective, Trump just looks at them and says, "It's the same damn thing, except they're prosecuting him and not prosecuting me." Well, but but to, Dan, but to Danny's point, well, it is the same thing
2: in the sense of the the offense is the Espionage Act, right? But as as I said, and I shouldn't have been half joking about this because this is really true. Um, You know, number one, I'm saying Trump should get charged with obstruction and Biden shouldn't, which is a serious matter. And the other thing is cooperation is relevant to sentencing. So even if you didn't, let's say you didn't prosecute. Let's take obstruction off the table for a second. If you were the the judge and both guys pled guilty to one count, say, in satisfaction of everything, one count of the Espionage Act, they're looking at 10 years exposure. You would give Biden... A lesser sentence than you gave Trump because Trump engaged in a pattern of obstructive activity, whereas so far as what the special counsel is telling us, Biden was not only, you know, reasonably cooperative, he could have made them, you know, try to get search warrants and done all kinds of other stuff to to hide the information, and he was cooperative. So when he got caught. Yeah, but I'm saying but I'm saying they both plead guilty, Mark. I'm not what I'm saying is you give you give the guy this happens all the time in the criminal justice system. Like take these two political guys out of it. If you got two guys who commit the same crime and one of them is helpful with the investigators and the other one obstructs the investigators, the guy who obstructs gets a higher sentence than the other. I'm, guy not, I'm not disagreeing just with you, Andy. I'm disagreeing.
0: I'm, I'm pushing back on Danny and her her defense of Joe. If your shameful defense of Joe Biden, Joe Donald Trump was president of the United States <laughs> yeah, when he took.
1: Less defensive. No, Donald hold on. Trump. Let me
0: make my point, and then you can you can rant and explain to America, show everybody why you're wrong about stuff. But look, Trump took those documents when he was commander in chief and had declassification authority. Joe Biden took those documents out when he was a United States senator and he took them out of a damn skiff that he wasn't even supposed to have them in his office and took them home and put them in the Penn Biden Center and when he was vice president when he had no authority on classification or declassification at all and then he had them there some of these are from his senate tenure so you you're, he's had them for 20 years he's been using them he's been talking to his researcher about them he, he's been, they're 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 being shared with people they're sitting in the Penn Biden Center where they're having foreign visitors coming through all of that's true and that? why is that any better than what Trump did, except for the obstruction? It's the exact same thing. If it's worse,
1: he really going out and playing golf and telling people yes. about their classified on the it's worse. yeah, no, dude. Sorry, anyway, we have a guest here. Let's fight later. <laughs> <laughs> this is how this is increasingly this is what this year is. Really- I hate
2: to tell you this, but but right before we got on, that's exactly what my wife. Down the hole, so, well, yeah. For so whatever that's. Like.
1: <laughs> she sounds like an excellent woman. All right, let's let's. We're talking about the law, which is obviously something Mark and I are deeply unqualified to talk about, and you are. But we're also where. And you do anyway. Shut up. (laughs) But we skirt skirt around the skirting around, you know, the real elephant in the room, obviously, which is what everybody's mad about. Uh, Everybody is not mad that the president got a buy. Everybody is not mad that uh, that her found that he had, in fact, been uh, unbelievably negligent and probably violated the Espionage Act, but that the president is a doddering, senile, old sod who is not mentally competent enough to remember when he was in office, who was not mentally competent enough to remember when his son died, the son about whom he will not cease speaking. Uh, We all know the fact that he does not remember how his son died. And so these things have been hugely, hugely damaging. And everybody's mad at her. All the D's are mad at her. Should her not have included this in his report?
2: I don't think he had any choice but to include them. And again... My sense, reading the report, Danny, is that he's trying to be painstakingly clear by quoting him when he, you know, the worst stuff in the report reads to me like he's it's, e- it's either coming off a of a tape recording or a transcript because he wanted to be faithfully close to whatever it was that Biden said in answer to these questions. And the other point I'd make about that is, as I said before. It was up to the attorney general what to release here. Garland read the same report we did. If Garland had problems with the way that her had articulated this, he could easily have said, as I would have said if I was his supervisor and I was worried about it, I, I'd say, you know, let me see the tapes. You know, let me see the recordings. Let me review them before I decide what goes out. So, you know, I, I I really I don't think it's her's problem the the democrats have their own problem because they made this bed with a guy they i mean we've all seen the last three years they knew this guy was faltering and now they're kind of they're upset it seems to me because this is like a a king truly has no clothes moment but that's not hers fault
1: right no no i mean you're totally right we can only speculate But I have to say, you seem to be intimating that if you were the attorney general, you might have made a different decision about the confidentiality or about the release. Why did Garland do this?
2: To be fair to Garland, we've had this raft of special prosecutor type investigations going back to Nixon. I mean, this goes back to the 70s. And even though the reg is written to very explicitly to say that the report is supposed to be confidential and then it's up to the attorney general to decide what to disclose. The convention for a half a century now is that we get to see these reports. And I think from, from, because of that they're kind of written to be read. I mean, you'd be foolish as the prosecutor writing them to think that this was not going to see the light of day. And as far as Garland is concerned, you know, let's say he hadn't released a report or he had, you know, vigorously or, or uh extensively redacted it. You remember what happened with Bill Barr when he, he released a report that had about ninety seven percent of it was completely public. And it all made Trump look terrible. And he withheld the grand jury material because there was a legal issue about whether he could include that or not. And they went crazy. They threatened to hold him in contempt of Congress. They, you know, went to go. They may even have held him in contempt. I I, I can't quite remember. But um, I think Garland had to know that if he had withheld parts of the report, Jim Jordan would have been on his doorstep with a subpoena, like by the Close a business, and eventually they would have pried it away from them, and then it would look even worse you know the the bad stuff always looks worse if you redact it, and then there's a big controversy over why you redacted it, and then it comes out and it turns out to be explosive. It's even politically worse, so I guess I've been comparing this a little bit to sanctuary cities. Like, you know, all these Democrats say that, you know, we want to have sanctuary cities until now they actually have to provide sanctuary. And they were like, we didn't mean that, you know, here Garland and Biden run around telling everyone how transparent they are. Well, this is transparency. You get bad information (laughs) and you have to make it public. Um, And I think, you know, he didn't have to make it public under the reg, but if he hadn't made it public, he would have been dealing with a very different and probably – more intense political problem.
0: They don't like the fact that he released this information, but this is the only information that has prevented them him from finding that there was a reason to bring charges. So you can't have right. it both ways either, you know, and there, and what he was basically saying is that after Biden left office, this is the argument his lawyers would have made to the jury that he is not mentally competent, right?
2: And it's also a wrong argument. I mean, first of all, if you're evaluating how the witness's condition is going to influence the jury, that means as a prosecutor, you've already checked the boxes that he committed all the acts that are necessary to violate the law, right? If you're evaluating, when you have a case that has a legal problem, you never get to how is the jury going to be affected by it because there's not enough evidence to bring the charge in the first place, right? If you're talking about the jury, that's already bad for the defendant. But the other thing is, The analysis doesn't make any sense in terms of of his guilt or lack of guilt as to the charges. The issue of his current mental state is relevant to whether he's fit to stand trial, which is a big issue, and you, you, you might end up in a big litigation here. But in terms of his guilt or lack of guilt with respect to the particular acts that violate the Espionage Act, What's relevant is his state of mind at the time he committed the acts, not his state of mind now. So to the extent that, you know, her gave him a pass because currently he's like non-compost mentis or something close to it, and therefore, you know, they, they worried how that would affect the jury. You can do it that way. You can, you know, you can say, this is my reason But it's not a reason that makes sense in terms of the
0: criminal acts we're talking about. They're saying that this is not an accurate description of his mental state and his mental condition. Weren't Bill Clinton's interviews with the independent prosecutor released? I mean, isn't there precedent for releasing the actual transcript or the actual tape recordings of his interviews with her? and let the American people see, not just from a prosecutorial standpoint, but from the perspective of, do we have a president who is non-compos mentis when all these crises are happening around the world?
2: Yeah, I thought I thought that in the weekend interviews, Bauer, his answers to those questions, I think Bauer was the, was the Biden lawyer who was out there making the rounds over the weekend. But you can tell that they don't have a good answer to the question you just put, Mark, because when they asked him, well, it, you know, can't we just get the we'll get the transcripts and the recordings and if what you're saying is right about Biden and that this is all hyperbole by the prosecutor everybody could will review the conversation that they had and and we'll see and then Bauer said well a, uh, uh, you know there's a process um, and there's a lot of classified information you know they have to like go through this very carefully and make sure that we redact all the so the thing is if you're the defense lawyer and you think, that the recordings help you, and the position that you're trying to make publicly, then you don't care nothing about classified information or anything else. You want the tapes out, right? You want a, you want the, that publicized. So the fact that he's not tripping over himself to get that information into the public domain indicates to me that the, that what a common sense reading of the report. Indicates, which is that her was being very careful to quote Biden rather than characterize him because what the report represents is the accurate version of Biden.
1: Let's talk for a second about the the Constitution. I want to segue away from the Gaga and talk about everybody else being Gaga for a second. So one of the things this has raised is the ugly question that we learned a lot about during the Trump administration, which is the 25th Amendment, right? I think people forget that that requires uh, action on the part of the president's own cabinet. But let's use that and talk a little bit about that. And then let's segue to the conversation about the other constitutional uh, little trick that's going on now, which is the efforts to use the 14th Amendment. That got a hearing in the Supreme Court last week, and it didn't. neither of them look like they have great prospects for being used this year. But talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, the, you know, the 25th Amendment... I always think like the most important – it's fun to be a lawyer and weigh in on all this stuff, but the most important conclusions that have to be drawn on the basis of the Constitution tend to be political judgments rather than legal ones. And the 25th Amendment is a political process. It's a political calculation that's got to be made by the vice president and at least half the cabinet in order to invoke it. The way the amendment is written – a president who is determined to retain power is going to be able to retain power in the end because what the 25th – the 25th Amendment, in my recollection is it was ratified after the Kennedy assassination. And what they were thinking about was the possibility that had Kennedy lived – you know, he would have been brain dead. But had he, had he you know, continued to survive in a vegetative state after the shooting, what would have happened? and the other precedent i think is the uh, that they had in mind was the woodrow wilson precedent so you're dealing with like a situation the only the only way it ever seems like an automatic to me is when you're dealing with a president who truly cannot function biden can function he's just he just can't function well enough to be president as i understand the way the 25th amendment would unfold i'd be very surprised given his current state if Kamala Harris and the cabinet would invoke it. And part of the reason I think they would never invoke it is because he would fight them on it. And if you if you're a president who would fight on this, then the president is going to win because the the presumption in the amendment, like the presumption in the Constitution is that the public should decide who the president is rather than uh, this process. So it's really meant for a much more dire, situation than the one we're in. That doesn't mean it would be the responsible thing for Biden to do to step aside because he's not up to the job. Um, But I don't think the 25th Amendment is going to push him out.
1: And then there's the Supreme Court and the 14th Amendment, the effort to simply keep Trump off the ballot, uh, again, sort of hiding behind the founding fathers, which again seems to me to be, you know, this this does not work the way you think it works if I can bastardize the Princess Pride. (laughs) Well... My criticism of my
2: own um, thinking about this after the argument is that I think too often – I, and I do this myself all the time – too often we look at what the partisan affiliation of the judges is and that, that's a pretty good barometer for how they're going to come out on a lot of these politically freighted cases. And I think sometimes ideology – is more important than partisanship. We kind of conflate them most of the time because the the parties line up that way, more or less. But in this instance, you know, those three progressive judges are Democrats, and they vote with the Democrats most of the time when it's an issue that's important to, to Democrats. But they're also ideological progressives. And the reason I think this is important is... If you went in there as Colorado or to argue Colorado's position, you're dealing with six conservative justices, more or less, who are who line up pretty much as textualists and originalists. Right. So the problem they have is the text of the amendment does not support what Colorado wants to do. Like, for example, the text says. You can't be president, right? What Colorado is saying is you can't run for president. So on the one hand, they're invoking the 14th Amendment in order to do what they want to do, which is keep Trump off the ballot, but they're also expanding the meaning of the 14th Amendment beyond what it actually says. That would be an argument that wouldn't be and wasn't attractive to textualist judges. Then the other problem they have with the conservatives is history, right? Justice Thomas is pressing them on you know there were a lot of confederates around after the civil war how come this didn't come up more often like why don't you have a million examples of states that kept people out of federal offices and they can't come up with them so with the with the conservatives the most important thing is always going to be original meaning history and text and they're it's all uphill for them but then when you look at the the three progressives um Yes, they're Democrats, and it's Democrats in Colorado who are trying to knock Trump off the ballot, and for the most part, it's Democrats across the country who are are running this gambit to try to keep him off the ballot. But the thing is, these are progressives, and if you look at the history of the United States, the history of the progressive project in the United States in terms of governance, the most important foundation— of the Progressive Project in the United States is the 14th Amendment. As Chief Justice Roberts said during the argument, you have an an amendment in the entirety of the 14th Amendment, not just Section section 3, the point of which was to claw power away from the states and vest it in the federal government. And it restricts the states in various ways, and yet, Here, what Colorado is asking the court to do is a kind of a hyper-federalist thing to like basically say a single state can decide who can run for a federal office, the most important federal office. So I would think that in almost every case, I'm sure, for example, if you looked at Justice Kagan's career or Justice Sotomayor's, we haven't seen that much from Justice Jackson, but I bet you every 14th Amendment case that they've had They've been trying to expand the power of the federal government, and here they were asked to do the opposite. Which is why I think it was up. It turned out to be uphill on both sides.
0: Walk folks through a little bit of the Fourteenth Amendment and how it claws back uh, state power and, and empowers the federal government, so people understand the broader context. Yeah, well, I think the
2: the most important parts, obviously, are the the Equal Protection Clause uh, and the and the Due Process provisions. Um, they have been used basically to empower the federal government at the expense of the states, including uh, to incorporate the Constitution. When the Constitution was originally ratified, it only um, limited the federal government vis-a-vis the states. Uh, The court, particularly the Supreme Court, has used the 14th Amendment to incorporate virtually every fundamental right in the Constitution against the states, as if, it was originally intended to, to limit them. So, um, between the 14th amendment and the way that the court began to interpret it, particularly in the new deal, but there's seeds of it before the new deal. And then going forward with the, you know, with the administrative state, which just gets larger and actually, um, seemingly gets larger, even under Republican presidents, it gets larger under Eisenhower, it gets much larger under Nixon. Um, All of that, to me, Mark, goes back to the 14th Amendment, you know, to the extent that the most important case before the court, this term may turn out to be that case involving the administrative regulation that requires you to have uh, two government inspectors on the fishing boats, you know, where where they have to pay for it, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That may be the the case where the court actually starts to cut back on the administrative state but that is an edifice that's built on the 14th amendment.
0: Do you think it could be 9 nothing? I do. At uh, 8 to 1 or 9
2: nothing. Oh, I, I do I think it's going to be 9 nothing. In fact, um Justice Sotomayor, everybody who uh, the commentary I heard afterwards was they thought Sotomayor was more kindly toward the Colorado end of the argument than you know, Jackson gave them a very hard time. Kagan gave them a very hard time. But I you know Sotomayor started one of her questions saying something along the lines of, well, if we rule against you, we could rule that the state can't knock the president out, right? But we could still – we could leave it open that other federal offices are possible and and obviously state offices. So even she was thinking of a consensus position where a state can't knock the president off the ballot – and I actually think, you know, Jackson's point on this, to me, it, I, I've been arguing this from the beginning of this uh, issue's emergence. I, textually, I just don't think this provision applies to the president and the vice president. You know, they have a list of uh, federal offices that there's a disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. They, ha- they even include electors for the president and vice president, but they don't include the president and the vice president, which to me is – you know, I know, I understand. The answer is that they that somewhere in the debates over the, um, over the amendment, they said, well, the president and the vice president are covered under you know the federal officer provision. I think it's a very peculiar omission uh, to leave out the president and the vice president. I have never thought that this amendment was meant to apply to the president. But I will. Can I just say one other thing about this? Because I th- I do think that we may be headed toward a, a train wreck in the end. I, I do. The court's going to come out, I think it'll be 9-0. It, it, it'll be very one-sided one way or the other on the consensus proposition that the states don't have this authority. But they're not going to say that with respect to the federal government. So here's the problem. As the Supreme Court, if you don't straighten out what does insurrection mean and what do you have to do to commit insurrection – What's going to happen is if Trump wins the election, Democrats in Congress at the next January 6th, at the next joint session of Congress where they have to ratify the result of the election, Democrats in Congress will invoke Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to object to Trump taking office. And we'll have this whole to-do all over again. So what I'm worried about is— Roberts and I think a lot of the court very much wants to speak with one voice here and and be as close to nine nothing as they can be and the consensus here is is going to be the states can't do this but that doesn't solve the problem because if you don't if there's still doubt as to whether Trump actually did what's legally necessary to commit insurrection even though he's never been charged with it then this is going to come around again if he wins the election and you have, you know, the next joint session of Congress to ratify the electoral votes.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. And and I think this is the problem. You know, we all laughed when, when Bill Clinton said that depends what the meaning of is, is. And uh, and thought that that was you know unbelievably dishonest sophistry. Now nothing means what it says. And uh, and you know if people can decide that I don't like what you did, you know wh- we could say that you know we could say that, that 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 Biden wasn't upholding the Constitution because he has failed to protect our border, right? And therefore I'm not going to vote for him on the next January sixth. So it becomes this political football in which. The meaning of things is completely up to it depends where you sit, which brings us to our final exit question that we actually invited you on for. So, right. Joe Biden, Mr. Borders. Now, last last time you checked in with this bat channel, everybody (laughs) said, Mark Teethan, that in order to sweeten the pot to have aid for Ukraine, we needed to have the border dealt with. Because that was something that people were worried that we weren't paying attention to, worried more about Ukraine's borders than we were about their own. Poor Senator Langford, all his hard work. And then Mark Thiessen, who originated that great idea that we need to put the border in there, said, This sucks. Okay, Andy, did it suck?
2: It really did, actually. Um, and look, <laughs> I, I. Once again, I, I don't have. <laughs>
1: Well, I – the
2: thing that really annoyed me about this is Trump decided to jump in, and then it looked like all objection to this was, was carrying water for Trump, which was – I was glad I was on record of, as being against – yeah, I
1: know. It's the, it's the way of the world. But
2: but look, I think the border does have to be dealt with. And Maybe you we
1: do... can use the 25th Amendment on Mark. <laughs>
2: Do we have a do we have a do <laughs> we have a quorum? From, I don't. Do we... Remove me from this podcast. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> well, I, I I think the border does have to be dealt with, and legislatively there is a lot that can be done to fix it. But just because it's legislation doesn't mean it's good legislation. And here, what I think they were doing was everything that's good in the bill is something that Biden can do already on the basis of the law. And he keeps saying that he can't fix this, that he needs an act of Congress. There's a provision in the immigration law, Section 1182. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interest of the United States, he may, by proclamation— And for such period of time as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants. He can close the border now. And the Supreme Court looked at this two years – it was during the the Trump years, so I guess it's probably three, four years ago. But the Supreme Court says Section 1182, basically 1182F, oozes authority for the president – Under it, there's no doubt in their mind, for example, that the president could set up a blockade to prevent aliens from coming into the country and could just seal off the border. The president has that authority. So to my mind, if you're going to improve things here, don't tell me that in order to get Biden to close the border, I have to buy on to a lot of really bad stuff. And the worst things in this bill are that right now under federal law the law is that a, a illegal alien who enters the united states shall be detained until the end of the person's conclusion of uh, proceedings the removal proceedings what this bill did was change that presumption in the law and basically codify releasing people into the united states now They say that, you know, but what we do here is we make it a really short period of time. And guess what? We've also increased the detention space. So we're really serious now. They increased the detention space from 34,000 spots to 50,000 spots. Biden currently is not using the 34,000. Every year he's asked for less space and they're about to close a facility in California, a 2,000 space facility, because it's empty. So he's not using the space, but let's say this went into effect and you now had 50,000 instead of 34,000. If the if let's say 4,500 a day came in or 3,500 a day, how long do you think the, the detention space is going to last if there's only 50,000 detention spaces? They'll be right back to catch and release on, on the basis of their own algorithms and the fact that there's no space. And my point is, if the presumption in federal law is that an immigrant who is illegally in the country is supposed to be, it says, Congress says, shall be detained. This is not ambiguous at all. They're, they're supposed to be detained until the end of their their hearings. If that's the law and the president has the authority to close the border, then why not close the border at zero or close the border and only let in as many as we have detention space for. Because this algorithm where they say, you know, whether it's triggered at 4,000 or 5,000 or 8,500, there's all different, you know, iterations of it. Um, But the the presumption of all of it is that the border can be closed. This whole thing that they've been telling us for three years that if a person sticks a toe on American soil, um, he has all kinds of procedural rights and we have to have him in because he's allowed to challenge uh, whether we can kick him. You know, all of a sudden they decided, well, it turns out there's a magic number and if you hit that, we can close the border and we don't have to let anyone in. Well, if that's the case and our law says that it should be zero, then why not close it now until we can get the backlog dealt with?
0: So the the argument for this bill from people like Danny who want to aid to Ukraine and we got to have a compromise is like, look, this isn't the bill that we would pass But it's better than nothing. And I think what you've argued is that it's not better than nothing. It's worse than nothing, because right now the president of the United States has blanket authority to shut down the border. But if you if you pass a law authorizing powers, the president already has with new conditions, you're not authorizing anything. You're legislating conditions that this bill would supersede the law you cited. And therefore, restrict the president. So, when if, let's say Donald Trump gets elected and he wants to shut down the border, well, Mr. President, Congress legislated that you can only do that when there four, when you get to four thousand people at the border, and then you can only do it for two hundred and eighty days in the first year, and only two hundred and forty days in the second year, and only one hundred and eighty days in the third year. And that's the new law now, right? So this would supersede the powers that exist in the law, so it would actually tie the hands of the next president, right? Yeah. Is that is that accurate?
2: That is accurate. Uh, and we have to remember that the the provisions here would be being applied by judges that Obama and Biden have put on the court. And we've seen how that goes during the four years of, of Trump's administration. But the other thing is it would codify the levels of immigration or the levels of illegal immigration that we're seeing now. I, before we came on, um, I, I just – look back at some of uh, these statistics. Between 2007 and 2019, which is not a good period of time for this problem, apprehensions averaged 1,354 per day. And if you extend that out to 2023, which, you know, from 2021 through 2023, it's been a catastrophe, right? Um, It it gets closer to 2,000 a day. So... If you're going to have a magic number where you close the border, why are we talking about five thousand? Why not at least, you know, I I would make it zero, but why not go back to one thousand three hundred and fifty-four, which is what it was, you know, for for uh over twelve years, I guess. Even two thousand, I you know, I we've talked about this a number of times, but like Jay Johnson when he was Obama's uh, Homeland Security Secretary said that he used to look at the, the data every day. And if it was a thousand, he knew he had a catastrophe on his hands because our social services networks, our law enforcement, our education, our healthcare systems, they can't assimilate that. They can't handle that amount. And now we're talking about as a as a rule, nearly five times what Johnson said was a catastrophe. And some days, because of the, precisely because of the policies of this administration, it's considerably above 5,000. So why would you – if you're going to codify an amount, why would you codify the disaster that we have now rather than something that was um, not good but at least was a much lower roar than
0: what we're dealing with? So if I could summarize our conversation, Andy, the the border is a disaster. Democrats are trying to weaponize the Constitution to keep Trump off the ballot. And the president of the United States is non compos mentis. Is that a fair summary of our conversation for the past 15 minutes or so?
2: I want to ask Danny a question, though, because I'm sympathetic to the funding idea. I don't understand, though. Why can't we just have them? I mean, I, I understand they're now taking votes. Shouldn't the solution all along have been like a standalone vote on Ukraine, an accountable vote on on Israel and, you know, an accountable vote on Taiwan?
1: I refer you back to a fine piece written by Mark Thiessen in The Washington Post, which made the argument that I think was credible at the time. The problem for all of us is that, you know, is that a Congress can't agree it be there are shifting arguments about Ukraine, right? So first it's, you know, oh, it's all it's all their fault. And then it's, well, you know, we're not going to move unless you do something on the border. Biden wants Ukraine, so we've got to get the border. But they can't keep their arguments straight. I think where this ends, if I had to guess right at this minute that we're recording this, I think where this ends is in three separate bills on the House floor. But that's not going to be a simple thing for a variety of complex reasons that are not interesting to our podcast listeners and may well not be true by the time we release this. But I mean, I think I think that this was sort of, you know, meant to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's why they did it. And of course, the whole conceit fell apart because Congress can't do anything. Congress can't do anything. That well, is the bottom line. The whole conceit
0: was that they were going to use Ukraine aid to force Biden to accept a tough border bill. And instead, what they did was they came up with a crap border bill that actually cost votes on Ukraine because pro-Ukraine Republicans won't even vote for it. Okay, so that's that's what happened. There you go. My column, my column was fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because remember, this is not what the hell is going on. But what the hell does Mark think today? Thank you very much, Andy. As usual, <laughs> we got you here under false pretenses, spent most of the time arguing with each other, and loved having you nonetheless.
2: <laughs> it's been a complete pleasure. So, thank you so much for having me.
1: <laughs> a roller coaster ride.
0: We love having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Danny, Andy doesn't disappoint. And as always, anytime we have Andy on, I learn something. And what I found the most fascinating of the many fascinating things he said was how the ideological confluence behind this 14th Amendment case the textualists and the originalists are going to oppose it because they're expanding the actual text of the 14th Amendment and it's not in keeping with the original intent and the history. And The left will oppose it because the 14th Amendment is the foundation upon which they have seized federal power from the states. And so, therefore, they need to protect the 14th Amendment. I just think that's a fascinating insight. Um, And I I honestly I hope that he's right, that there is a nine nothing decision because we could use some unanimity in this country and it would be a huge pushback. And maybe a wake-up call to the left to stop abusing the justice system and the Constitution in order to achieve your political ends, because that's exactly what they're doing here.
1: So, A, I don't think that's going to be the case, although I do think we're going to get a heavily weighted decision, 9 nothing, 8 one something like that from the court. But what I found most fascinating in exactly the same part of our conversation was Andy's note that, uh, that in avoiding defining what it means to to have been involved in an insurrection opens us up to this argument coming again and again and again i just i got to tell you i'm a, i'm not a lawyer i'm a layman but as as a citizen the idea that you can simply announce you know hey he's not eligible he was involved in an insurrection no legal paper trail, never been charged with insurrection, let alone convicted, is so damaging to our democracy that I'm surprised. And I I hope at least uh, that Justice Roberts and and some of the other justices uh, take this up in their opinions.
0: Absolutely. I hope they do. And just to keep in mind in, in context of this, Donald Trump was acquitted in his impeachment trial. The way, the way you would, you would have a finding of insurrection is that he would be convicted of it and impeached for it and convicted of it and he was acquitted. Or he would be convicted of it in a federal court and they haven't even charged him with insurrection. So, you know, the January 6th committee actually recommended that he be charged with insurrection, and Jack Smith chose not to do that. So there's no basis whatsoever for this. But I think what we're going to see, if if history is any guide, I think Andy's absolutely right, that they we're going to have a new January 6th. And the new January 6th is going to be the Democrats trying to stop President Trump from being, if he wins, uh, assuming the presidency on the basis of the fact that he's an insurrectionist. So it, I, I hope you're right that the court just settles this once and for all because— we, we we i can't take this anymore <laughs>
1: No, that's exactly right. And uh, I'm sure you all feel the same way. Hey, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for putting up with Mark and I arguing with each other over our guests. We always have a There's lively
0: a- discussion when Andy's on, don't we? He provokes uh, yeah. the most interesting conversations and arguments between
1: us. Well, that's for sure. Not that it takes much. <laughs> thanks everybody for being here. Don't hesitate to let us know what you think. <laughs> and uh, you can leave comments on our sub stack anytime.
0: We'll see you next week.